Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University, these conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. Okay, let's do this. Thank you all for making the time. I want to especially thank all the panelists that you'll be hearing from in this discussion. This discussion is essentially an extension of what we've tried to do with the Extremely Podcasts. Everybody on this panel is an alumni of that podcast to the degree that one can be an alumni of an actual podcast, but I think you know what I mean. I should note that the feedback we have received on the Extremely Podcast from policymakers, media, academics, students, some other weird people, that feedback has all been about how much they appreciate the depth and insight that you're going to hear from the panelists on various topics of extremism and, and hate and disinformation and the strategies to combat that. But the part of the podcast that they appreciate most specifically is how folks who are doing this work in this field are coping with these issues. That has resonated with the audience. And that's why this topic, I think, is important because it's important for the audience. So while we often deal with difficult issues, with tragedy, you know, in those times, it's really not about us. But tonight it is, in a sense, about the people who are doing this work, especially because more and more of this work has to be done. So I should just quickly say the idea for the podcast and even for this webinar came, well, initially for the podcast came out of an Uber that Cynthia Miller Idris and I were in coming back from a conference in which Kathy Blee was hosting in Pittsburgh. And we realized that there really is a hunger not only for expertise on extremism, but for those people who want to get into this business to understand what are the pathways in. What are the ideas that they should keep in mind or the concerns that they should keep in mind before making that jump into this work? And so hopefully today we'll be able to provide more context through the lens of people who are doing this work every single day. And, you know, I think it's important to find a space to talk about the impact on the people who are trying to make an impact. So I'll stop there and turn it over to Cynthia, who has been a partner in crime throughout this entire experiment that we've been putting together for any, any introductory comments you might have. Thanks, Oren, and welcome, everyone. Uh, it's great to have you here. Can't wait to get into this conversation. Just also want to thank ADL for really organizing and hosting this, and that I'm here, you know, on behalf of the Polarization Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril at American University, but really ADL has been carrying a lot of the heavy organizational work here, and I just want to call that out and thank them for, and thank Oren and the team there for helping out and getting it all off the ground. And also to our speakers for being here and joining us and, and being open and willing to kind of reflect in this less formal way. So I'd say, you know, one of the other reasons I'm really interested in this topic and is because I feel like a younger generation of students and scholars have really embraced and pushed the idea of self-care and mental health in all aspects of their lives, have brought it onto the agenda and have had more open conversations about it than certainly than the way that I was raised in academia or in the field in general. And I think it's, it's an opening for us to both think about what we need to be doing as folks who are supervising graduate students or interns, um, but also to learn from them and in the way that they have been much more willing to just put it out there and say, this stuff is important. So I think it's, it's a conversation that's also for me generational in learning about what we need to be doing to model this 
and also to learn from approaches that come from folks who have been pushing the envelope on this even better than an older generation, I would say. So that's really all I have, I think, and, and grateful to moments of inspiration that come from shared Uber and taxi rides and, uh, and from invitations to go visit Kathy Blee in Pittsburgh, which you know anybody would do anytime you get an invitation to go see Kathy. So thanks for hosting us there. And this, this is part of what comes out of that a couple of years later. Awesome. All right. So if folks can turn on their video now, I think we can get started. So by way of introduction, I think we're going to go around and say your name, what you do, and answer the sort of first question. When your work is getting super heavy, when it's a bit difficult, what's your go-to comfort activity to be able to step away for a minute? And we're going to keep these at one minute, and then we'll get into the other questions. So I will model the behavior, and then I'll popcorn it around to the right person. So I'm the vice president of the ADL Center on Extremism. I've been doing this work with ADL for over 20 years. I have a tendency of listening to radio calls of old basketball games that you can find on YouTube, et cetera, because I find it actually kind of meditative. You have to sort of actively listen and it enables you to sort of get out of a, you know, trying sort of a moment. So that's, that's one of my go-to ways to relax. And if you think that's weird, that's okay. So I will then popcorn that over to Heidi Byrick. Hey, I just want to thank Warren and Cindy and my, Cynthia and my one minute and the ADL. So I'm Heidi Byrick. I'm a co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, and I was at the Southern Poverty Law Center for 20 years up to that point. For me, there have been a lot of coping strategies over the years. The most recent one has been swimming, like a lot of swimming, jumping in a pool, doing 40 laps and getting my mind off. I would say the lazy strategy, which has always been there, but is much better now with streaming, is watching just trash, just junk. So I'm on Boardwalk Empire right now, season five. I'll throw it to Mark. Thanks to everybody for giving me an opportunity to be here. My name is Mark Pitt-Cabbage. I'm a senior research fellow with the Anti-Defamation League, and I've been working in the realm of extremism in one way or another since 1994, um, and especially since um, 1995 and the Oklahoma City bombing. There are two ways that I kind of get away from that sort of thing when I need to, which are very different, but both of which work. First, I have a hobby of an extremely intense board strategy game called Advanced Squad Leader, where when you're playing that, just like when you're playing chess intensely, you literally cannot think about anything else but what's on the board in front of you. And so you definitely get away from all your other problems. And then the other thing that I do is roadside photography in rural Ohio, where I live, which is the most peaceful, non-demanding, relaxing, tranquil sort of situation where you're driving on backcountry roads and taking photographs of farmhouses and woods and whatever you might see. A very different form of relaxation, but both really kind of work. I will select Kathy. I'm Kathy Blee. I teach at the University of Pittsburgh, and I'm also the co-director of the new University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon University uh, Collaboratory Against Hate uh, Research and Action Center, which I'm very excited about. So um, I, I think it's pretty clear I'm the oldest person on the panel, so I've been in this game the longest, getting to 40 years. And that's an interesting question because early on, I didn't feel like I needed coping strategy because it wasn't like the whole world wasn't about this. I spent the first 10 or 15 years of people saying, Why? well, that's the stupidest topic in the world to talk about or study. Nobody cares about it. It's not going anywhere. You're in a dead end environment. So there was no need to coping strategy. Mostly it was just hard to find anything and everything else in the world was not about that. Now it's totally reversed. Now it seems like everything in the world is about this and you have to really dig to get out of that world. So 
Uh, my coping strategy is uh, like Heidi's junk TV, but I, I'm really focused on, of course, tennis. But beyond that, shows in which people are nice to each other. So I think I've seen the British baking show all the way through three times, and I'm going to start my fourth time through. Uh, turn this over to Amy. I'm Amy Sotelnik. I'm the executive director of Integrity First for America, which is a civil rights nonprofit behind the federal lawsuit against the Charlottesville neo-Nazis and white supremacists. Um, so I've been directly in the anti-extremism space probably a lot less for a lot less years than some some of the incredible folks that are here, probably only about three to four years directly. But before that, I worked in the New York Attorney General's office and in other governmental offices where we were at least part-time working on this, but certainly not with the intensity and the 24-7 nature of, of this specific job. There was all sorts of crazy in those roles. Um, only part of them had to do with white supremacists and other forms of domestic extremists. And I would say my, my answer is twofold. Definitely agree with Heidi and Kathy. Trash TV is the way to go. And it can take all sorts of forms. If people have recommendations, please feel free to put them in the chat because between the pandemic and uh, this work, I've probably exhausted my Netflix and Hulu queue far faster than I would have otherwise. And also, if you can get a dog or some sort of pet, my uh, my dog, Fred, who I was trying to bribe with treats to join us, but just is not that well-trained yet, has been a fantastic way to sort of get off Twitter, get offline, and just take him for a walk, take him for the dog, to the dog park. And he demands attention in a variety of ways, which is a very good distraction from the craziness of this sort of work. And I'll pass it to Amar. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, um, Cynthia and Oren, for the invite. Um, I think, I mean, just as, as Cynthia mentioned, these kinds of conversations are, are new, surprisingly, and, and hugely uh, important. Um, I'm an assistant professor in the School of Religion and cross-appointed to political studies at Queen's University in Ontario, Canada. I might be the only one on this panel, actually, who studied kind of the civil war context in Sri Lanka, in Somalia, studied jihadism for a long time, and also now dabbling a bit in the far right and other movements. So before all of that, I was a rapper for 10 years and, uh, you know, actually made several albums and, and uh, was heavily involved in that. And, and much like Oren's YouTube rabbit holes related to basketball, I go down bizarre, old, traditional kind of very rare hip hop interviews, uh, battle rap competitions. Um, our mutual friend, Kurt uh, Braddock, will attest that sometime around two, three in the morning, he'll get a text from me with random YouTube videos like, hey, you have to watch this. And so I, I find uh, it's not exactly meditative in the same way that Oren's stuff is, but it's, it's actually quite intense. But I find it at least uh, puts me in a nice headspace. I will pass it to Cynthia. Thanks, Samar. I, uh, I have a bunch of different coping strategies, and, that, and I also change, I would say. So one, I've long been a runner, although I've had two surgeries now on my foot. So my, my running days are slowly tapering out. But that's been a long time strategy to go running and just get away and kind of meditatively get out of it. I would say in the pandemic, much more been reverting to competitive connect four and ski ball are the games that I really, it's very difficult until the shutdowns were lifted to get back in the ski ball uh, situation, but basically non-strategic, no skill, real involved games that are just fun. And um, I mean, maybe you could argue that ski ball has a little skill, but connect four is just pretty much luck as far as I can tell, even after all these games. So those are mine. Joan, I'm going to popcorn over to you. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, I just got caught in the craziest rainstorm I have seen in a long time out here in Massachusetts and the 
highway got flooded. So it was a, uh, it was very strange. I made it. <laughs> um, a coping strategy. So uh, I'm Joan Donovan. I'm the research director over at the Harvard Kennedy Shorenstein Center, and we study all manner of things, media manipulation, disinformation. But uh, for the last six years, pretty solidly, seven years, actually, I've been studying white supremacists, uh, began with studying the way in which they interpret science and utilize science to do boundary making and identity formation, as well as, you know, just the, the way in which society makes it seem as if there's some kind of genetic purity to some races and, and these things. So looking at scientific racism and how that affects the way we treat one another and the way we understand the world. And so at Shorenstein, though, we've been focusing very specifically on these white supremacist groups that have adopted different media manipulation, disinformation tactics to spread whatever thoughts and ideas and ideologies they have. And so when I talk about coping, though, it really starts for me building a strong team, building a team of people that are complementary in the sense that we've got, you know, we've got the kind of nihilistic, everything is terrible person, then we've got the joker who's, you know, and then we've got a couple of people who are um, hopelessly optimistic, and then I fall in somewhere in the middle ground where uh, I play a, a lot of different roles. So it's really about building that that social support in um, to the work and not doing it alone. Uh, I've been pretty impressed with some of the collectives that have popped up over the last couple of years for people to support one another through very um, particularly trying times. And then personally, I think the other thing that I do is I go to therapy. So like I don't uh, I don't hide it from people. I don't think there's any shame in uh, in needing to talk about these things. Uh, I did have a particularly recurrent nightmare after the insurrection that was really hard to work through, um, especially because I had um, watched the Ashley Babbitt video live with a few members of my team while we were watching the Jaden X stream. And we all sort of froze and said, was that, did you see that? Do you think that, you know, and it would just, it just made me feel really bad as a boss uh, because of course everybody is encouraged to tune out in moments of heightened intensity. Um, but at the same time, I think like everybody on this call feel a very deep sense of duty to keep looking. And that was actually something that I, I had to seek additional help for because I just I couldn't stop the intrusive thinking about that anytime I went to bed more lightheartedly though uh sorry to like jump in and be like hey um I like I really I bought a car that I love driving <laughs> and so that's another thing that like when I have time I just go for a ride that makes me like incredibly happy probably just because I can put on my music and play it really loud and sing along and go by the beach so glad you said that i'm glad you said that joan because everybody else's answer before you logged on was like trash tv or that sort of thing you got <laughs> you got pretty deep pretty fast um mm -hmm. so i think now we're gonna cynthia's gonna ask the first question to half the team the other half can respond and then i'll we'll just go back and forth so go ahead cynthia Thanks a lot, everybody. Those were, those a great and wide range of, uh, I mean, we did some themes. There was a lot of trash TV there, but also, I mean, surprisingly, I don't think anybody said chocolate. Like there's some, there some real go-tos here that I'm like, there must be some big ones that we're missing. But yeah, I wanted to start with a question and this is, I'm going to, because I heard Kathy say something in a webinar that we were in almost a year ago that really stuck with me all year, which was a question about how do you cope with, or how do you handle 
the possibility that your work could get used in ways you don't anticipate. You were talking in that webinar about the issue of, um, it was an ethics and methods webinar. And so it was about like, what happens if a defense team wants to use it? Or what happens if you, you know, who's citing it? And I've heard other scholars uh, talk about like far right groups actually using their research to promote or talk about some of their stuff. So what, what happens when you put things out there, when you write something or you do a report and do you worry about how it gets used or what you could be called upon to become an, what, what you're suddenly an expert in, I guess, is, is one, of the, it's one of the things that I worry about. So I'm looking for personal therapy strategies here. On, <laughs> um, but no, so it's curious just whether other people worry about that or is it just me? So I'm going to call on Kathy because you reflected on that, on this issue. Then I'll call on Mark and Heidi, I guess. So that would be the half of the room that I call on here. I would say this is something I agonize over all the time, beat myself up about all the time. You know, there's specific things. So, you know, defense attorneys approach me. That's creepy. But I think there's like a bigger picture. In my world, I feel like the whole enterprise of studying the far right has also some beneficial aspects for them. And that's the part that really tears me up. So, you know, I noticed this long, you know, long time ago, this shows how naive I was, but, you know, I was going to talk to neo-Nazi folks and they, they had like collections of my work and they were like not upset about it. They were like excited to meet me and like they were going to also be in my work. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm against you guys. Like, whoa. But, you know, it's just underlines like studying people gives them some like not only public visibility, but like some public value in their eyes and, and makes them feel like they're like important actors. And I think the whole, you know, kind of using defense arguments and stuff is troubling. But to me, the really troubling thing is like everything I've done also, you know, hoping to undermine this movement also has this other little side avenue here that I'd like not to think about, but I think about it constantly. Yeah, I will just add to that briefly, and because I also see a question uh, in the audience, you know, would, wouldn't you expect it to be used by organizations researching similar topics? So I think what I'm reflecting on here, maybe I should have been more specific, is kind of what Kathy was saying. For example, a lot of what I've studied have been for-profit companies that are selling hate merchandise or merchandise that's coded with clothing. So I will often be asked to write for the public about that from mainstream newspapers or whatever. So one of the things I'll say is, you know, I don't hyperlink to brands, right? I won't hyperlink to websites because I don't want to drive traffic to them. But then sometimes after it's out of my hands, the editor will add something, right? That is, you know, a video that still ends up being like a commercial for the brand. I mean, so there are ways in which I wonder, has my work inadvertently literally helped some of these folks profit? And so that's the kind of where are you drawing the line between sunlight shedding some, you know, sunlight as a disinfectant versus giving oxygen to a movement that helps them grow, um, that helps them market, and you know, participating in an interview with the media when they're also profiling a group that the group gets more time than you do. Um, so are you being used to legitimize something? So I'm gonna um, stop talking and uh, and hand it right over to Mark. Let's say next, and then you can hand it, and we can go right to Heidi from there. Over the years, I've had I've had some of my work used or exploited by people from the far left or and people on the far right alike, as well as journalists with a particular slant or public figures with a particular slant. And I think a lot of that is par for the course. 
when you put something out there to a certain extent, whether you're writing nonfiction, whether you're writing fiction, it's no longer yours. And you may write a novel and you may think of it in a certain way, but people may interpret it a very different way. That will just happen. There are certain areas where there was sort of more conflict for me. So for example, one of the things that I've done for many years is, is write and explore this, about the sovereign citizen movement, an anti-government extremist movement that engages in a lot of scams and frauds. And, and using pseudo-legal theories. And I often explain and explicate a lot of pseudo-legal theories and point out a lot of frauds and scams used by people in the movement. And I will, from time to time, find con artists in the movement actually quoting me, attacking certain other con artists in the movement, you know, or debunking their theories or explaining why it's all a fraud. And, and they will share that with their own audience to say, yeah, so, so Joe Blow, i.e. my competitor, Joe Blow, is a pure scam and fraud. Look at what this expert Mark Cavage is saying. But mine is different, right? So you really need to send me that $3,000 for my four, my three-tier um, Commonwealth Trust package, you know, that will allow you to avoid income tax for the rest of your life. And so, you know, the bottom line is you just don't have control over that. And you have to think that the good that your work can do is going, certainly going to outnumber how, you know, the rare extremist or other character out there might be able to sort of exploit it or take it on a left turn somehow. Unlike Mark, I haven't actually profited off of my uh, expertise on anything in the anti-government movement. So good for you, Mark. I think that's actually quite funny. What I want to say here actually is that the fact that Kathy asked this question to you all, or brought this up to you, Cynthia, a while back, and the fact that we're talking about it, I think shows a great advance in the understanding of this issue. You know, when I came to SPLC back in 99, we didn't think twice, even with the relatively primitive internet back then, of linking to things, of the idea that stuff could be used in a propagandistic way about breathing oxygen into these movements the moral quandaries over when journalists should maybe write about something and when they shouldn't. And Joan, you probably don't know this, but it was some of your work from like five or six years ago or a conversation I had with you. This is the first time that I started thinking deeply about this. It reminds me a little bit of the idea that these younger folks are talking about issues like self-care and whatever. I Maybe this comes from what Kathy said that 20 years ago, it didn't seem to consume our entire lives. But I'm just glad that the ethical considerations around this are being discussed and taken seriously. You know, I think it's really important. And it shows sort of how the field has grown, right? Because more people are weighing in and they're thinking through these things in a way that just really wasn't happening, say, 15 years ago. Before we move on to the next question, Amy, uh, Amar, Joan, anything you want to add to that question? I just wanted to say thank you. It was a really hard thing to write about strategic silence at a time when there was a lot going on with the alt-right and one of the persistent problems with let's just say like the oxygen hypothesis is it's not to say don't cover it's to say don't hand over the column inches so that they can say i'm not a racist you know i enjoy going to taco bell and you're like what what and how did this get in a newspaper right and so it was really about like pushing a broader public education campaign and helping journalists understand that it wasn't just about getting quote. And for me, that was a really hard thing to do. I was like entirely pretty new on the scene. I was a graduate student. I was like, you know, trying to um, do this research in a field that Heidi was legend. <laughs> so that's, that's made my night. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'll just say something quickly about how I've experienced this most recently is through my interviews with ISIS fighters over in Syria and Iraq. And it's now become 
quite clear to the Canadian government sees a lot of these interviews uh, that I've done or that others have done as basically evidence, right? And so there is a worry, uh, and some journalists um, have already had to hand over some of their interview data, um, is that as these prisoners in Syria make their way back home, all of a sudden, the only piece of evidence that they joined ISIS is actually your interview with them. <laughs> um, it's going to be quite um, interesting to see where journalistic freedoms and academic freedom goes from there. Um, and, and so um, that, I mean, that is a constant worry of mine. This was brought up way back in 2012 by our own ethics department when we applied for ethics to interview uh, ISIS fighters. And they said, you know, what are you going to do when the RCMP comes knocking at your door? We had to kind of wrestle with that idea, but I still don't have a real way to kind of address that issue. That would basically mean you stop doing research at some point. It's a challenging issue, particularly when data becomes evidence. But yeah, that's how I've experienced it most recently. This is for Amy, Amar, and Joan, modern day Belle Biv DeVoe, if I may. So when, when Poison, you were... <laughs> that, was, that was their song, right? <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. So when, when you were considering this line of work, or since, right, in some of the work that you've done most recently, and Amy, we're gonna start with you. Did anyone you love or trust express reservations or concerns? And when they do now, how do you sort of help them cope with where you are at sometimes and the response you're getting from extremists? It's funny you bring this up because I feel like just a couple of days ago, my mother asked me, how much longer do you expect to do this? I was like, no, this is what I do now. <laughs> like, this is my career. This is my job. And she's, of course, this isn't to suggest that she or anyone else in my life isn't deeply supportive of this work. And I think proud of the fact that this is where, I, like I imagine everyone else's families and friends are, are proud of the fact that this is where we're, we're sort of channeling our energies. But I think, understandably, there is that tension that exists underneath the surface that you think about not just your own safety, but are you putting your friends and your family at risk too because of this? And I think about that quite often. And so there was that conversation that was had certainly when I, I was offered this role that I'm in now and with my husband, with my with my family, with, with friends who could be would help gut check. And, and the decision was made, of course, we, we take precautions, but this is really the crisis of our moment from my perspective. And it was too important not to say yes while recognizing the risks that exist. And of course, Lauren, you've probably heard me say this a thousand times, security is the biggest line item in our budget because of that. Like we have so much incredible work donated or discounted by our legal team and others. And the fact that security is the biggest line item in our budget is a testament to that risk, but it also, I think the importance of investing in it, that I can't ask my staff or anyone else that we bring into this effort to be a part of this without making sure that they also feel safe and secure. And so that is a big part of the equation, not just my own security, but the ways in which this could jeopardize the safety and security of my friends and family and my own team at IFA and anyone else involved with this. And we take it seriously and take really important steps. And I will also add, particularly to Joan's point about therapy, one of the first things I did when we were getting this off the ground was make sure that our health insurance plan would cover mental health and out-of-network mental health and, and sort of take specific steps in that regard so that our team could feel supported in that way too, if they wanted to pursue that sort of support. 
Great, thank you. And I don't know if other people noticed, but your dog was barking when you said the word security and therapy. So he or she agrees. He, um, yeah. he, he really wanted to participate. Could not get him <laughs> to sit next to me, but he's in the back. Why don't we go to uh, Amar next and then jump? The thing I've realized that for people outside of academia or outside of research is they really don't understand field research. And so when I when I say things like you know I'm going to Mogadishu or I'm going to Lebanon or I'm going to a refugee camp in Turkey, they're just like, why? What are you doing? Where are you going there? And so that took a long time to kind of explain to people that you know I don't just sit at a desk and work with data sets or you know whatever it is. I I, I see myself as a field researcher. I enjoy field research. And so that took a long time to kind of get through to people's heads that, that, that that's actually a process. But I will say. For the longest time, and I'm, this is why I'm kind of I'm, I'm very happy that this conversation is happening, is that even when I was going to these places and even when I was advising other grad students who were going to do field research, the kind of psychological, emotional impact of field research was not something we ever talked about, right? So the only thing I ever advised people on was make sure you have access, make sure you think about how you're going to get access, think about safety, yes, but it was usually like physical safety, think about you know, how are you going to protect the data that you collect? How are you going to transfer interviews? It was very kind of mechanical and logistical and technical. The idea that uh, you would be traumatized by this experience was not really a conversation that we had in any, in, in any meaningful sense. Even fairly recently, I mean, when, when I was talking to grad students just a couple of years ago, I never brought that up because it, it still hasn't struck me as a thing, right? As a thing to pass on to grad students, as a thing to pass on to postdocs and so on. Um, and it really hasn't really made its way into at the university level to how we talk to grad students. Um, and, it, and it's about time that I think this conversation happens and happens at a much more structural level because there are, as Cynthia said earlier, there are going to be doctoral students who are, who are going to go do field, field research. I think just saying, you know, make sure you press record on your device, uh, giving them very kind of boring technical advice isn't going to cut it, uh, cut it forever. Thanks, Amar. Joan? Zoom bingo. I win. Center square. Amar, I want to pick up on a point you made about talking to grad students about this, because I do get a lot of graduate students approaching me saying, I want to study far right online rabbit holes, et cetera. And I ask them, who else at their university is studying that? Are there other groups you can join? Are there people, other people doing that kind of risky research? What is your plan for disengagement? Do you have like a good support system? Have you read the literature? <laughs> you know, those kinds of things. Because I think you're right. They don't get a sense of like how lonely and scary it can be, especially if you get onto something early that a lot of people don't also see. Uh, one of the things that spent the last decade studying movements. And when you study social movements, you can kind of predict the future in a really strange way. You can kind of feel the world turn about six months ahead of time. In doing so, or having these gut checks and these gut feelings, it can be really overwhelming. And, and when you're alone and you don't have other people that see the same thing as you and can recognize it and say, yeah, I see that too, you feel very isolated. You feel very confused because then when things do happen, you're like, why didn't I believe myself, right? And those kinds of things, I think, in terms of when we talk about security and students don't always understand that you have to have cognitive security as well as physical security. 
I really worry about the next wave of graduate students who are going to be able to attend far right rallies. I think there's there's a wave of action coming right now. We see that there's, you know, the Fuentes white boy summer road trip happening. We've started to see inklings of that catching on. We've seen Tucker Carlson bringing up anti-white. We know that's a trigger for certain kinds of behaviors and groups. And I worry about stuff like that. And then I worry about, oh, well, that's just field work, but it's not. I'm hopeful, though, that there's a, a lot of us out there now, like Heidi was saying, and, and that people are starting to to realize that you need to pass on these tips and tricks. And as a faculty member, I asked for a panic button. I said, I need it. Like, it's just going to be the reason if I'm sitting at my desk and and my desk is also very hard to find. It's not like you can just walk around where I work. But it was something that I really had to consider when I when I showed up at Harvard Kennedy School. And it's something that we had to consider when I was at Data and Society as well. Um, we had a, a front door that wasn't, you know, manned in any way. And, uh, and, and things have had to change there as well. And so there's a, there's a lot that goes into it. And it's, um, it's definitely something that we think about, but also there are reasons why we do this work. The risks are also, there's something that you have to calculate as part of the job. Mark, Kathy, or, or Heidi, anything you want to add to this before we move to Cynthia with another question? I just want to say quickly that I think Amy's mom is exactly like my mom. <laughs> it just sounds like the same story. I think the, the newer trend that we're seeing also, which I don't think we're preparing our students for, is online tracking, right? It, it, is that a lot of students who reach out to me have, have already started doing it before they reach out to me. They're like 17 years old, 18 years old. They, they're not associated with any institution. They're because of Twitter, you know, because Twitter has taught them that they can just kind of download Telegram and become researchers. Um, and they sometimes make very sloppy mistakes. They leave their phone numbers visible. They leave their emails visible. And in terms of the psychological impact, it's not like going to a coffee shop, interviewing somebody for two, two hours and going home. It becomes a 24-hour tracking phenomenon where they're sitting at their dining tables, screenshotting things for days and weeks on end, right? And so both in terms of the security online, but in terms of their kind of uh, constant need to be in this space uh, to capture the data, um, I think that's going to be something around the corner for a lot of these students that we haven't really talked about yet either. Can I just add to that, that I, I see that also in sort of the work that we're doing outside of, of students where we're, because of the pandemic, a lot of people don't have to travel two hours back and forth from work, which means you're waking up, you're immediately working. For some, being able to sort of separate work and home is just like not possible. And especially when you're dealing with this work, I see that with the team that I work with all the time as well. And these are people with families and others where it's like always needing to sort of stay on top of that. And I think, frankly, one of the things that we need to think about as people are going back to work, how do we account for not just sort of lost, lost work that we were doing when we should have been having fun or doing other things, but how do we make that adjustment mentally as well? I'm glad you brought that up. And I just want to say it's not only students, but I think it's a lot of people even beyond. Cynthia, go, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, the next question is is also, once again, selfishly um, rooted in my own experience and wanting to pick all of your brains. But, uh, you know, I spent the first 20 years of my career basically working as an isolated academic in the most traditional sense, and then have spent the last year or two suddenly building a very collaborative lab. So there are a lot of things about working in groups, and especially in groups of where there are lots of students and junior scholars um, who are kind of looking to me, I think, often for modeling that I've had to think about and 
And I wonder if, you know, we often in these, in this kind of moment in a conversation like this, ask, you know, what's the one thing you would, piece of advice you'd give to someone just starting out? But I actually want to ask you to give the one piece of advice to somebody who's in a supervisory role over junior scholars or students or in a team lead role, starting a center or running a center or supervising staff. And so, for example, one of the things we did in the lab was create a panel of ethicists who, who we meet with quarterly, and they just advise us on ethical dilemmas that we face about who we partner with, who we take money from. How does the research get used? What are we struggling with? And we never run out of things to raise. We also sometimes have called an emergency ethics meeting. Um, and those are great. They're volunteer ethicists who, who have an interest in the topic and just meet with us to advise us. And it's something that we're trying to model the constant reflection of ethics as part of the work so that we're, we're not promising not to make mistakes, but trying to show the junior staff and scholars that this is built in, something that you spend time reflecting on. And I wonder if there are other examples like that, cybersecurity or mental health, or what are the structural things that we can do, those of us who have a little bit of power to determine those structures that might make this better internally. And so I know, Kathy, you're just starting a center. So I'm going to call on Kathy again, Oren. I'm going to call on you because I know you also have a team, even though you're not one of the folks that is an official guest here, your host. And maybe Heidi, because you've supervised lots of, and you're starting a new center as well. Although I really want to hear from everybody. I think the single piece of advice I'd give myself here, because I'm just starting, is that all the work we need to do has to have what we're doing tonight built into it more than it does, and, and more than incidentally. That, you know, in this work, I feel like only recently I've been in community in which, you know, people can talk frankly about their own personal lives and vulnerabilities and fears and so forth. But I think that's been just a terrible error. And that that's what I think we need to model to the younger scholars that it's not just permissible, it, it's actually essential that that become a routine part of their way of operating, that, that style that I inherited and carried out that sort of solitary don't admit this is really getting to you style is not good and trying to make a more deliberate break from that for this next generation is really important and you know as many people have said this generation of younger scholars they have much more you know that's more resonant they're they're much more advanced in their thinking about this than I am and so maybe it's not really a matter of cultivating it, just a matter of making sure they understand that from the position of people in power now is as permissible, this is essential, and, and we need to learn from them about that. I'll jump in quickly and just say, you know, we have an interesting team in the Center on Extremism at ADL because we have, you know, veterans who have been doing this work for a long time, people like Mark, for example, and, and others, and we have a whole bunch of, of new people. I actually think that's one of the benefit that we have is that it's not just sort of a group of students, but it's people in various stages of their career. And when new people come on board, all the, the managers on the team encourage, like, you're going to talk to everybody. You're not going to just talk to everybody about their subject matter or whatever. You're going to talk to them about, like, you're going to get to know people because eventually you're going to find somebody you actually like, right? And somebody that you can know, but that you can sort of trust and, and sort of have that conversation and not you know, be able to feel comfortable saying, this is a little strange, I'm not feeling comfortable. And people that have been through that to offer solutions on how, how to get through, or just somebody to listen, you know, frankly, who understands, which I think Amar was saying before in a different context. And then the second thing is encouraging people to take their vacation. 
encouraging people to literally actually get a certain amount of vacation days that are paid, use them. And if you're working extra on the weekends and sometimes after an insurrection, it's weekend after weekend after weekend and comp time, like make sure that you're taking time off, almost forcing people to do so. I don't care if they're staying at home and watching trash TV with Heidi and, and Amy or whatever, but I really do think sort of reinforcing that need to take time away will make you better at your job. What Kathy and Orrin have said is generally right. You know, I think about for how many years at SPLC, we didn't consider any of these issues, right? And had, you know, pretty large teams. And my colleague, Wendy Vine, and I, with this new effort, and I know this is also happening with my former colleagues at SPLC, are trying to be far more intentional about what Orrin just said, taking time off, not working 70-hour weeks, not being on all these hate Twitter sites, wherever you are, Telegram, all through the weekend, not having this feeling that if you miss five seconds of it, you know, you're going to miss everything. That's just, it's not a healthy way to live. There's also all the things that Amar and Amy and Joan have said about security, cybersecurity, the issues around mental health teams, the idea that you have to uplift your teams and create a positive environment. These are all so critically important for people to be able to do this work without falling apart. And unfortunately, I've seen people burn out really hard over the years or just get sort of crushed by it, right? It becomes a little too bleak to survive the next day. And all these strategies, if you're intentional about it, are what allow people to do this work, try to make the world a better place and themselves flourish right through that process. But it really, all I'm thinking is that it really has to be intentional. And I'll tell you, I'm trying very hard to make that the case with this, uh, with this new project. Right, I just add one quick thing, and this sort of speaks to Kathy's point earlier about how this is everything and everywhere these days compared to a decade or two ago. I think also like we all are working almost exclusively, if not exclusively on these issues in places that are in many ways, at least some of us exclusively focused on these issues, but there's also an increasing need for recognition among news outlets and other places where journalists are oftentimes dealing with these issues and being targeted by extremists to provide this sort of support. And I think about what happened to, for example, Mara Gay at the New York Times a few weeks ago when one of her, her quotes on MSNBC was taken entirely out of context and she was being harassed nonstop by these far-right extremists. And there needs to be a support system in place for journalists like that um, and for tons of other folks in other industries who are not in places that necessarily have had to deal with this so far. And I think it's not just people who are specifically experts in extremism, but also people who have to deal with it in the course of their broader work. And I hope that this becomes a more accepted and acknowledged part of the professional conversation across the board. Kathy said it best earlier in that what I've noticed with people who are kind of afraid to talk about this, um, you know, the friends I know in the, who work in the NGO world and kind of post-conflict zones, for one, is that there's a lot of guilt there about saying that they themselves are affected by this because the people that they're dealing with are far more affected by something else. And so they're dealing with, you know, sexual abuse survivors, displacement, torture victims, people who survived, uh, you know, war and so on. So they're like, I don't really want to feel it. I don't really feel like it's my place to complain about how I'm sad about this. Right. And so uh, they don't, they feel a lot of guilt in terms of how expressing what they're actually going through because they feel like the story shouldn't really be about them. The other thing, of course, is that for grad students in particular, I think there's a sense of having this stuff affect you emotionally is almost a sign of weakness. 
you shouldn't, uh, you know, you're in a privileged position in the West, you're, all you're doing is consuming Telegram and going on Twitter, it, it shouldn't really affect you. Um, and that if you if it does affect you somehow, um, it's a sign of weakness. And so I think going back to Cynthia's earlier question of being in a directorship role, um, I think creating a space for people to kind of not have to deal with that level of guilt on the one hand, or that, that sense of feeling like it's some uh, a weakness on your part, on the other hand, will be important. I mean, I, I think, I think, you know, practically speaking, creating a safe space for conversation, regular conversation with your team should accomplish some of that, I think. But uh, from my experience, that those are the two kinds of responses I've noticed is, well, I shouldn't be, this shouldn't be affecting me. There, there are people suffering a lot worse than me. And then what am I doing? I'm just sitting in my pajamas in my apartment looking at Telegram. Who am I to complain, right? Making them feel like that's okay. It's okay to actually be affected by this stuff. Creating the space for that conversation, I think is, is important. I just want to add one thing that uh, nobody's said yet, which is the original question about what would you tell a colleague if they were, you know, in the in the midst of this and or working in these places and starting up something new is try to keep your one on one meetings. Uh, that's where people do tend to tell you what's wrong. They're not going to approach you about it. If you start to see things slipping or you start to see someone having trouble or even if they're like just like starting to tune out or jump in with like a renewed fervor that seems a little manic it's okay to be like yeah let's have a one-on-one and how are things going and not making it strictly about whatever the the thing is that you're trying to get out or to work on because i find that that even if someone just is having a little bit of trouble early on 15 20 minutes of just talking about it can really take the pressure off because otherwise, I think what Heidi was saying about people cracking like an egg or being ground down, you know, that shows up in substance abuse. I used to work somewhere where I noticed that someone was just like, it seemed like every night had started drinking. And I was just like, oh, that seems like not your style. And they were just like, yeah. I'm like, well, you know, just kind of like think about it, you know, and and then um, and then when and if the need arises, I've always kept. <laughs> the insurance card mental health number on the back of it and remind people periodically that that's there. Um, just not individual people, but periodically just so that uh, people have a different set of ears that they can turn to. And so, but I think the one-on-ones is, is crucial. We do have a bunch of audience questions, which I'll go through. I'll start with this. What should someone consider before taking on a role in this field? Mark, I direct that to you. Having gotten into this field without having made a conscious decision to do so. I, through a very unusual chain of circumstances, I ended up sort of backing into expertise in extremism. I thought I was going to be um, doing military history for the rest of my life. And I've seen over the years people who were just not, in one way or another, not cut out for doing it um, in the long run, or who may have been able to do it in the long run, but didn't get the support for some aspect they were lacking. And so, I mean, one thing that I encourage is to encourage self-awareness. What strength, what are the strengths that you have that actually allow you to do this in the long term? Maybe it's intellectual curiosity, maybe it's a feeling of activism, that's that sort of energy. What sort of factors um, do you have that allow you to do this in the long run that you can take advantage of? But what and what are also some of the problem areas? Does seeing white supremacist violence or even glorification of violence bother you, for example? You know, that is something, is that something that you have a a harder time wrestling with than some other people uh, may seem to have. I mean, those are areas that you can then know you can talk to people about, or you can try to get some su- support mechanisms in place to help you deal with those aspects um, in the longer run. Because you don't want to put energy and effort into something like this only to abandon it 
because it wasn't right for you. Thanks, Mark. Other comments on that? I want to say there's the one question I want to leave for the end for everybody. So maybe we see any other responses to what Mark said, one other question, and then the final question. I mean, I would just add, I think it's really interesting. I bet, I bet a bunch of us feel, I certainly feel I often refer to myself as an accidental expert. So I bet a lot of us feel that we didn't intentionally get into this. And I wonder if that's one thing that might we might think about. I Certainly, I feel like I'm meeting more more people than ever before who intentionally want to come into this field. And that seems like, first of all, it, it is an opportunity to shape these practices of self-reflection and self-care and ethics and things that maybe some of why we didn't think about it is because we weren't intentionally realizing we were going to be doing this work um, for so long. So there may be some opportunities, but also it seems to me if you're starting this at 20, 21, 22, you know, it's a long time you're going to be doing that. And, and with intention, really thinking hard about what it means to be doing this work for a whole career with intention and, and being careful. I think it's just an opportunity, but also kind of an obligation to think differently about people who are doing this work on purpose instead of accidentally. So Amy, I'm curious if, if you want to respond there only because you're developing an expertise on some really awful human beings because you're suing them. So how does, how does this sort of resonate with you? Like, how do you sort of view this? I wholeheartedly agree that I sort of accidentally found myself in this role too. I thought I would be in government, politics, mm -hmm. policy work, and, and obviously ended up doing this, which is part of that work, but put me sort of in the extremism disease. And obviously the people and the groups that we are developing this expertise on are particularly unhappy about the fact that we are and have made it well known to us. And those sort of level of threats and harassment on a near daily basis that we get is probably far greater than I expected when I took this job when I did. I didn't sort of proactively think about it in the way that I perhaps should have. I would have still said yes. Um, and so, I, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of what's been said to think about this perhaps far more proactively than I did and to also ask questions about what will be made available to you in terms of the things you need to make this manageable if it is what you want to do. Um, and of course, as, as so many have said throughout the course of this conversation, speaking up and making sure that those things are actually being made available to you if you're not getting them. Okay, so those of you who have seen me talk about stuff that's depressing, I, I can't leave it at that. I end every night, usually with a key lime pie, like a full pie, because I want to be happy before I go to sleep. So I want to ask a question that maybe leaves a little bit more optimism. So what is the top aspect of engaging in this difficult work that makes it all worthwhile, that makes it all worth it? And this is from the audience. So I think the audience too is looking for a little hope beyond the incredibly thoughtful sort of tips that we're giving people on how to cope with that. So why don't we start with Heidi on this? What I think makes it worthwhile to be absolutely uh, clear is that these are some of the worst ideas that mankind has come up with. And so if you get the opportunity to do something about this and, you know, shift the world to a better place, it's really something. And I think that's, you know, for all the trouble, all the difficulty, the horrible harassment, everything that comes with this, I think that's what makes a difference. You know, my family personally was affected by what happened in World War II, the Holocaust. I can't have it again. You know, we just we can't have it. And I know that's how everybody who does this work feels. Thanks, Heidi. Kathy. I can't really add to Heidi. I think that's exactly it. And, you know, my community was affected, um, devastated by the Tree of Life massacre and lost friends. And, you know, that whether or not we're making progress, I think we are. But I, I just feel like there's no 
turning back from this work really that uh, I just feel like it's compelled to do it. And that in itself, I think is, you know, what keeps me going. Thanks, Kathy. Joan. For me, it's, there's so many reasons, but I think that it's a process. There's no end in sight, right? This is how society is. And so you need people who are going to dedicate themselves to this part of the social process of ensuring that people do have community security. And I think that that's really important because we're not going to be able to rely on the police and DHS and the cops. Like what we have is each other. Um, And in terms of the way that this shows up in communities that I'm part of, that, you know, especially the the anti-Semitic white supremacist violence. When I was a teenager, as a young punk in Boston, it, you know, you saw them, you could recognize them, you could see them, you knew what you knew what to look for, you knew the bands that they they liked and things. It's become so much harder. And the dog whistles are much more sophisticated. And then something that Heidi had had given a quote not that uh, a couple of years ago that really motivated me even further was about uh, those who are being radicalized through online engagement. So they're not meeting someone. They're not being turned on to these ideas because their social circle is part of it. It's technological. We're doing it. These companies are doing it. And so I see my particular skill set as useful for looking into that and for causing attention to it. And so I'm going to do it until I'm no longer able to do it. And that's just how I am. Thanks, Joan. Mark. Well, I'll mention something sort of specific to me and then something that I think you know, is more generally applicable to anybody um, in this field is advice in that regard. I mean, for, first for me, I mean, the thing that I, I learned about myself early on in this business was that what motivated me was intellectual curiosity. And if I was consistently continuing learning something, teaching myself something new about extremists, whether it was discovering, you know, uh, uh, learning, you know, the ideology of a new, uh, new to me uh, area of extremism or new idea or tactic, that would go a long way to sustaining my energy in the long run because I was getting that intellectual feedback. But I will say one thing I also learned to do was to take advantage of those few aha moments that come along where you kind of realize that your work, even if your work was abstract or even if your work was indirect, where you did something. I mean, I mean, I can point I mean, I could point to certain things, um, you know, in my own career work, like expert witness testimony um, that I've given in a number of trials that actually helped convict some people who really deserve to be convicted assistance that I've given in law enforcement investigations or a couple in particular where where we, we help police nail some really bad people. And just think of that, you prevented victims. You got people off the street before they could do something horrible. Someone who worked for me helped initiate an FBI uh, sting operation in, in which the, the person, the target of the operation, thought he was hitting the detonator on a bomb for a federal courthouse. And, um, you know, that was, that it was luckily not an actual bomb, but he, was, he thought it was and he was trying to. And now he's off the streets. You know, those incidents, whatever those aha moments come up, whatever they are for you, savor them. It helps you realize that you've helped make a difference. Thanks, Mark. Amy. Uh, just to build on what Mark was saying, I, I think those moments are are really what, what does is I, when Richard Spencer tells the court that our case has financially crippled him, that feels like we are making a difference in the world. Um, and I will say also for me, the people that I've gotten to know and work with, including so many folks here who I've worked with for years at this point, and, and some folks who are more recent, um, including Kathy, who's an expert witness in our case, and Heidi and Oren, who have been enormously helpful in a variety of ways, including Oren just filing an affidavit a few weeks ago when I frantically called him on like a Friday at 5 p.m. or something, 
savoring those wins to, to echo Mark, but also get, sort of being in a community like this and getting to, to learn from and, and meet uh, folks like all of you and, and so many who I think are watching is, is part of that silver lining as well. Thank you, Amy. And Amar. I, I would underscore everything that's been said so far, but I, I think to kind of echo what Mark's been saying, I, I come at this a bit personally as well as uh, kind of socially as well. I mean, personally, you know, I, I grew up in a war zone. I came to Canada as a refugee. And so I've, I've kind of endlessly been fascinated by this question um, of why and when do some people come to see violence as not only justified, but obligatory. And I think the kind of puzzle of that keeps me interested on a day-to-day -day basis, just as, as these new and bizarre movements keep popping up. I think the kind of intellectual curiosity, as he put it, keeps me, keeps me interested. But from a social perspective, I, I think um, I've never felt like I've had social impact, policy impact, um, impact on law enforcement, impact on government, impact in academia, until I got into this space. The extremism studies environment has, is, is particularly tapped into um, some of the more pressing issues that, that we're facing today. And therefore you're really in a position to kind of have a real impact, unlike you know, some other spaces in academia perhaps. But, and so those two things I think combined um, are the key, or the key lime pie of, of, uh, of the field. <laughs> Thank you, Amar. Last but not least, Cynthia. Yeah, I would just, I mean, there's really two things that make it a lot easier for me. One, I think I'm lucky in the sense of, um, you know, I spend my time thinking about interventions and prevention in particular. So I've spent the past year in the pandemic, like we made an animated video, we made active videos, we did some amazing stuff and we got evidence. And luckily, you know, every single thing we did this year worked, right? We got great evidence showing that these techniques can work. And I think that's a really, it's a very empowering message for us, for my team, you know, to feel like we're doing things that make a difference. And so I guess in general, I would say what the message, the through line that I hear with everybody is it helps to feel that there's a sense of purpose or a sense of meaning in our work, whether that's the, the public impact or the opportunities to share what we've learned with the public. I mean, for me personally, I'd never wrote an op-ed at all until about four years ago. I, I avoided it like the plague. I've probably, ever since I finally did it, I've written dozens of them. And it's such a privilege to be able to be invited to share those kinds of words, to share it with the public and to feel like maybe it's making a difference in communicating that. So I see it as an obligation, as others have said, but also as a privilege, as a way of, of using a platform to, to help people understand what might work to move the needle. There's, it's a lucky place to be, to not have to focus on the negative side of it, but also on what we might do to make a difference. So, or and I don't think besides the key lime pie, you didn't really say. So we should end with what it is for you. Sure. Thank you. And thank you all again for making the time. I think this is a good, important conversation. For me, what makes it worthwhile is frankly, I don't laugh that much, but when I laugh at something at work or something that one of you all say, it is a really hard laugh. Right. Like it is it is as hard a laugh. And I know that's that sounds like kind of small compared to like writing op eds and preventing terrorist attacks or whatever, because, you know, I get involved in that, too. But like being able to to have a serious release makes it worthwhile because uh, I'm like Heidi. I don't have any other option. This is the shit I'm going to do no matter what. So this is the end of our extremism anonymous meeting. Thank you all for sharing. Hopefully we can do this again, but really, really appreciate not only all of you making the time, your leadership in this space, your thought leadership, the impact that you have every day. See you on Extremely in 2022. Thanks all. 
ADL is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and education that enables law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org. American University Center for University Excellence, Q, is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril. To learn more, visit american.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.